This morning we're going to continue in our passage, our, our series in 1 Samuel, look, finishing or looking at the life of Saul with the idea that we are Saul. Now for those, if you've read enough of 1 Samuel, hopefully you've already read through the book, as I've encouraged you to. This is now the, what, the ninth week that we've been in this book. Hopefully you've had time in the last nine weeks to actually read it a couple of times. You know that Saul's life doesn't end well. So why would I say we are Saul? We all want to be David's. I want to be the David's, you know, a man after God's own heart. I want to be the one who slays the giant. Not the one who sins with Bathsheba, but the one who slays the giant. One who collects all the stuff for the temple. I want to be the one who writes the Psalms. I want to be the one who God says, this is the one that the line of Messiah is going to come from. Yeah. I want to be like David. But more often than we care to admit, we're Saul. We're like Saul, whose heart is not committed to God, whose desires are my own desires and selfish and Sometimes we don't like to admit it, but that's us. And if you look in Scripture, we all want to be the heroes. We want to be Moses, who parts the Red Sea. We want to be Abraham, who has the child, Isaac. We all want to be Joshua, who leads his people around the walls of Jericho and watches the walls fall down. Yeah, that's who I want to be. But we're really not those heroes. All those heroes got to those places through times in our lives where they were more like Saul. Where we have failed God. We've questioned God. And all these stories in Scripture, they really all lead up to one culminating point in Matthew and Luke and John and Mark where Jesus is born. All these stories that we look to in the Old Testament, they all kind of bring us to this point in the New Testament where Jesus is the point. So as you're spending time in the Old Testament, spending time in the minor prophets, spending time in the Psalms, spending time in the Proverbs, spending time in the history books, spending time in in Genesis and spending time in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and the law where it's all kind of you're like bogged down. I know as I've been there. Anybody else join me in that? We've all been there. Sometimes you just read the word of God because we know we should be reading the word of God. There are times, and I think we could all admit this, you're reading just for the sake of reading. Because I know there's something good in here for me today. Y'all been there? I've been there. It's okay to admit that. We've all been there. But you know what's awesome is that when you get to the other end, all those things that you read because you were just being faithful and being obedient to, to get through it, God uses all those passages in your life down the road in the future. You're building up for victories in the future, so you can recall those times when you read Genesis 5, where it says, so-and-so begat so-and-so and died. 
so-and-so begat so-and-so and died, so-and-so begat so-and-so and died, so-and-so begat so-and-so and died. And you're like, really? The graveyard of the Bible. Really, God, this is what you have for me today. When you're like one of my daughters who likes the little bitty facts and figures and you see where all these little characters eventually lead up to in God's plan for the Messiah. It's not just names. They're not just dates. They all have a purpose and a plan in God's big plan. So as we look at Saul this morning, understand that we are Saul. Moses, we're like Moses who griped at God at the burning bush. I mean, really, Moses? <laughs> Here's this bush, it's on fire, and you're going to walk up and go, no, God, I just can't do it. I just can't do it, God. It's, it's not, in my, not in my character. It's not in my strength finders list. Or we're like Abraham, who lied to Pharaoh. Oh, no, Pharaoh, this, this is my sister. It's not my wife. It's my sister, because I fear for my life, and so I'm going to lie to Pharaoh that this is my sister and not trust that God's going to take care of me. Or we're like the children of Israel, who God leads from Egypt, parts the Red Sea for them. They go into the wilderness and they go, God, I'm so thirsty. God, I'm hungry. God, why did you lead us out here to die when we would have been better back in Egypt? We're like them. We're like Saul, who takes upon himself responsibilities that weren't given to him. He disobeys God's plan. He disobeys God's express desires and command for him. And instead of having his family lifted up to go forward in history to be the ancestors, yeah, the ancestors of the Messiah, he gets cast aside because of his disobedience, because his heart, his heart was not committed to God's plan. His heart was committed to Saul's plan. And because of that, the Bible says his line was cut off. The kingdom wasn't taken away from him. He got to continue out as king of Israel. God had set him up as king of Israel. And he got to continue for the next 39 years. And this happened in year one, right? We read about it a little bit last week. We happened in year one. And he disobeys God and God says, I'm sorry, you're done. So he lives the next 39 years in anticipation of his death. In anticipation of this boy child who comes in and slays the giant, slays Goliath. That this is going to be the next king of Israel. Not my son Jonathan, not any of my other sons, but this shepherd boy because of my disobedience. It's no wonder he got frustrated and angry. Knowing what he had missed. Knowing what he'd missed out on. Too often we are like Saul. With hearts that are not totally devoted to God. 
1 Samuel 16. You see what happens when Saul's heart is not committed to God. 1 Samuel 16, verse 6. It says, When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see him as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on his what? His heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, uh, Hello, are, are all your sons here? And he said, oh, There still remains one. He's the youngest, and behold, he's, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him. We will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. And now he was ruddy and beautiful eyes, as most Davids are. Ruddy with beautiful eyes. Handsome. And Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And look at this verse. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from when? From that day forward. The Spirit of God planted himself in David's life from that day forward. Was it because he was ruddy, had beautiful eyes, and was handsome? No. What was it that God was looking for? It says, his heart. His heart. God looks on the heart. Why did God reject Saul? His heart. And one of the saddest verses. Verse 14, now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a harmful spirit of the Lord tormented him. See, God did not abandon Saul. Saul had already abandoned God. Saul's heart was already in opposition to the things of God. He was already desiring his own things, his own plans, his own desires, trying to lift up his own name. And God said, because you are not completely devoted to me, I reject you and this plan for a long time down the road to be the ancestor of the Messiah. Your line as king cannot continue because your heart is not given over to me. 1 Samuel 15, 26 says this. It says, For you have rejected the word of the Lord. It's Samuel talking. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Sad. Saul had so much promise, and yet, through it, he didn't live up to this promise. See, God is seeking out for himself one who was more like him. One whose heart was like God's. Who, in spite of the difficulties and life's curveballs, chose to obey, worship, 
and draw others into a loving relationship with their creator. In spite, and we know David was not perfect. David was far from perfect. You read through the first and second Samuel through the rest of this study. He killed a man. He slept around. He had multiple wives and cheated on them. He had times of fits of anger. He killed people out of just spite. He was by, by far, far from perfect. But you see, his heart always came back. His heart was for the things of God. His heart wanted to lift up the name of God. He said, God, I'm going to build you a temple. I want to build you this temple to honor your name and to give you a place where you can reside because here I am in this beautiful castle, this beautiful place, and you're sleeping in a a tent. God, I want to lift up your name and give you a place of prominence and a place of worship. God says, no, you can collect the supplies. I'm going to let your son build that temple. But even in, though David's heart was committed to God, even though David's heart was fully God's, God said, there's too much blood on your hands. We're going to let your son, with his clean hands, build my temple. David had made choices in his life too. Even though he always came back, he always came back, he always came back and his heart was pure. He says, God, cleanse me. Do not let your spirit depart from me. In, in, Psalm, 1, in Psalm 51, you think that he's maybe in the back of his mind when it says that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul? And here he is in Psalm 51 after his sin with Bathsheba going, God, don't let your spirit depart from me. Maybe in the back of his mind, he's thinking, God, I've sinned, I, I'm sinned, I've sinned. Cleanse me with hyssop. I know that sacrifices are not what you desire. You desire a clean heart, fully committed to you and following you. Don't cast me out of your presence, God. Don't remove your your spirit from me. Let me remain as one of your holy servants. What was it about Saul's life that caused such consternation for God? What was it about David's life that led God to rejoice in him even when he sinned? Their heart commitment to him. And see, in Saul's heart, as we looked this morning, Saul's heart led him to disobey God on a regular basis and did not bring him back. He disobeyed God as David did, we could say David definitely disobeyed God. But there was a heart issue there that brought David back that wasn't there with Saul. And so as we look this morning at Saul's disobedience, what is it about Saul and disobedience that we need to learn in our own lives as well? We're going to look at four things this morning. That disobedience is anything less than full and immediate obedience. How many times have we told our kids, go clean your room? And then they go and they play around. Did you clean your room? Not yet. Did you say they obeyed or disobeyed? Okay. Secondly, we're going to look at how disobedience grows out of our greedy desires. Okay. Or thirdly, how disobedience further estranges us from God. 
that separates us from this relationship with God. And lastly, how disobedience can only be overcome by the gospel. The gospel. See, our sin, that thing which keeps us from, keeps mankind from heaven, is not my pride, it's not my lying, it's not my jealousy, it's not those other things, it's my disobedience. Pure and simple. God says, do this, act this way, live this way, and I say no. It's my disobedience. So let's break this down and look at it this morning. Disobedience is anything less than full and immediate obedience. You hear this, kids? Saul, in his offering of the offering, can I say that? Offering of the offering, the sacrifice before the battle. One strike. God told him, when you go and you fight against the Amalekites, wipe them all out. And this whole issue of a holy war versus divine war that we can discuss, I'll talk about that a whole other time. I'm not going to get into that this morning. But why God wiped out certain nations, why he commanded them to go and wipe out men, women, children, animals. But Saul was commanded to go do that. He says, you wipe everything out. Scorched earth. And you keep none of the good stuff for you. You keep none of the money. You keep none of the jewels, none of the gold, none of the silver, none of the, the, the crops, none of the animals. Wipe it out. All of it. Samuel comes around and he finds King Agag there. And he hears pens of bleeding goats and lambs and sees piles of treasure. And says, Saul, what is this? What have you done? Oh, and these are offerings for the Lord. Did God ask you to do those things? Did God ask you to sacrifice all these animals? Did God ask you to collect all this treasure? No. He said, get rid of it. Wipe it out. These things that are unholy cannot be made holy by offering them to God. And he says, because of that, you've been cut off. See, God demanded Saul's immediate and complete, his full obedience. Not question him. Not say, God, I think I have a better way. Anybody else been there, been there? God, I know you've told me this, but I have a better way. I think I'm going to pursue this instead of what you've asked me to do. Huh, how well has that worked out for any of us? But Saul as the leader had a little more pressure on him. See, Saul, Samuel says, you know, disobedience is as a sin of witchcraft. What did they do to witches? They killed them. They burned them. Stoned them. We need to be asking these questions of ourselves. Are there areas in our lives in which we are not obeying God fully? Are there areas in our lives where we are not obeying God fully? Are there places where we are compromising? Where we're saying, God, I know you said this. I'm going to do 90% of it, but this last 10%, no, I'm not. I can't, I can't do it because of whatever reason. Are there areas where we are 
compromising and not obeying God fully. We're good at making excuses. We're good at making excuses for why we don't do what God wants us to do. God, I don't have time today to read your word. God, you don't know my schedule. You don't know what my wife has put me through, and I'm just angry and frustrated right now. Guys, don't say anything. Don't be elbowing. God, you don't know what these kids have done today to me, and I'm frustrated and I just can't spend time. No. We need to spend time in his word. We know that. I need to spend time in prayer more than just, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food, by his hands, well fed, give us our daily bread, amen. We'll read more. But we are spending time in prayer. See, religion tries to pay off God. We, 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 we know that we are not obeying, and so then we come to God and we say, God, I'm going to tithe with my time. I'm going to try to buy you off with, with more, uh, put more on the offering plate. I'm going to come and commit myself over here rather than obeying you where you want me to obey. We try to buy off God. Religion wants us to wants to obey God, but on its own terms, its own timing, and its own conditions. We're good at religion. We're good at saying, I'm a Christian. I go to a Baptist church. And that is what identifies me in my religion. Because we think we can come to God on our terms, our conditions, and our time. See, the, and the, yet the faith-filled life always obeys God right away without reservation and without regret. There's a story that we heard, those of us who went to the men's conference last year, of William Borden. He was the heir to the Borden Milk, the Borden Dairy Company, family. And in, when he died, in the back of his Bible, there were six words written. No reserves, no regrets. No retreats, no regrets. I'm going backwards. No retreats, no regrets. I want to read you this story this morning so you can see why, how we can live our lives with no regrets. In 1904, William Borden, heir to the Borden Dairy Estate, graduated from a Chicago high school a millionaire. His parents gave him a trip around the world. And traveling through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe, he gave Borden a burden for the world's hurting people. Writing home, he said, I'm going to give my life to prepare for the mission field. When he made this decision, he wrote back, he wrote in the back of his Bible two words, no reserves. Borden arrived at Yale University in 1905. During his first semester, Borden started the movement that transformed the campus. His friend wrote, It is well, as well on in the first term when Bill and I began to pray together in the morning before breakfast. We had been meeting only a short time when a third student joined us and soon after a fourth. Borden's group was the beginning of the daily groups of prayer that spread to every one of the college classes. And by the end of his first year, 150 freshmen had become interested in meeting for weekly Bible study. By the time he was a senior, a thousand out of the 1,300 students were meeting in groups like this. Borden made it a habit to choose the most incorrigible students 
and bring them to salvation. In his sophomore year, we organized Bible study groups and divided up the class of 300 or more, each man interested in taking a certain number so that all might, if possible, be reached. The names were gone over one by one by one, and the question asked, who will take this person or that? When it came to the one who was the hard proposition, there would be an ominous pause. Nobody wanted to take the responsibility for Drew. Then Bill's voice would be heard, put him down on me. However, Borden did not confine his work to Yale. He rescued drunks on the streets of New Haven. He found the Yale Hope Mission to rehabilitate them. He might often be found in lower parts of the city at night on the streets in cheap lodging house or in some restaurant to which he was taken the poor hungry fellow to feed him, seeking to lead the men to Christ. Borden had already formed his purpose to become a missionary to the Muslims in China, and that purpose was never, had never wavered. He inspired his classmates to do likewise. He certainly was one of the strongest characters I've ever known and put a backbone in the rest of us at college. There was real iron in him, and I always felt he was the stuff of martyrs were made of and historic missionaries in those modern times. And although he was a millionaire, Bill seemed to realize always that he must be about his father's business, not wasting time in pursuit of amusement. Although he refused to join a fraternity, he did more with his classmates his senior year than ever before. He presided over this huge student missionary conference they held at Yale and was elected president of Phi Beta Kappa. Turning down high-paying job offers after graduating, Borden entered two more words in his Bible, no retreats. Completing his studies at Princeton Seminary, Borden sailed for China to work with the Muslims, stopping first in Egypt to study Arabic. While in Egypt, he was stricken with spinal meningitis and died within a month at the age of 25. When the death of William Voiting Borden came cabled from Egypt, it seemed as though a wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden not only gave his wealth, but himself in a way so joyous and natural that it was manifestly a privilege rather than a sacrifice. A waste, you say? Not in God's plan. In his Bible, underneath the words, no reserves, no retreats, Borden had written the words, no regrets. His heart committed to following the Lord so that none of his decisions, there was no reserves, no retreats, no regrets from doing what God had asked him to do and obeying like that. So I ask the question again, are there areas in our lives in which we are not obeying God fully? Number two, disobedience grows out of greedy desires. See, the core of Saul's disobedience grew out of his desire to become world-famous king, like Agag. He wanted to be seen as one who would, I'll spare his life. Here's the king from this other people group, I'll spare his life. I'll be magnanimous. In fact, I'll even build a monument to myself and to my things, to the things I've done. This morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating what Christ has done for us. We're remembering things that Christ has done for us. And Saul was all about letting people remember what he had done. See, we all have our own kings. That thing which we must have 
to feel happy and secure. We all have our own kings. For Saul, he wanted to be liked. He wanted to be world famous. He wanted to have his conquest and his activities remembered. We have our own kings. To the man who must have respect from others, maybe he's willing to compromise on his morals and values to get it. To the woman who longs for romance, she pursues it at the cost of all other relationships. To the man who's got to have pleasure, he pursues it in drugs and alcohol and porn, and excitement when, even when it's causing damage to his health and to his family. That woman who wants creature comforts, she does everything possible to get a larger house in a nicer area, better furnishings, a new car, avoiding that downtown place where God has directed her. What's our king? What have we set up as our king? Maybe it's one of these things. Romance, pleasure, comfort, respect. These things are only going to cause ultimate discomfort in our souls. They're not going to ultimately lead to any comfort in our hearts because we know we're going against God's wishes for us. We try to fill that discomfort with things rather than being filled with and finding contentment in the presence and possession of God. You realize that we are God's possession and we possess Him. We are God's possession and we possess Him. He lives within us. I mentioned this last week, but are you not at awe that the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God is indwelling us? That His he comes and travels with us as we go. As I go to Lynchburg this week to a conference, I'm not going by myself. God's going with me. His Holy Spirit is going with me. He is watching me. He is listening to my conversations. He's watching me and listening to the books I'm reading. He's listening to the music I'm listening to. He is there with me. The Holy Spirit of God. These things that we look to for our sustenance and for our contentment, are merely fake kings. Fake news is all the word all the word in the news these days. But these things that we try to cling to and hold on to are merely fake kings. And they mean to do nothing but draw our desires away from God. Thirdly, disobedience further estranges us from God. You ever had a relationship with somebody that was a little tense? But rather than going to that person and confronting it and apologizing, you just kind of let it hang out there. You ever done that with your spouse? I have. You get in an argument in the morning, you go through the day, haven't hardly said two or three words to them or maybe one of your children and you're just frustrated and angry and you don't want to you don't want to spend time with them does it ever get better if you stop you continually not don't talk to them you've got to go to that person you've got to go confront the issue the same with god when we disobey god when we continue to live in disobedience and we know we're doing things we shouldn't be doing and living lives we shouldn't be living. It doesn't get any better if we just let the relationship hang out. I know God loves me and I'm his possession and he's my possession. I'm just going to leave it at that. That's why God says, come to me, 
and ask forgiveness. When you ask forgiveness, I will forgive. Period. See, it's at this point in Saul's narrative when he jumps the shark. Y'all know what jumping the shark is. Some of you may, may not. Back in 1970s, the TV show Happy Days was losing viewership. So the Happy Days crew took a vacation to Hawaii. While, at, while they were in Hawaii, Fonzie, <laughs> Fonzie's water skiing, and he gets dared to do a ski jump. And on the other side of the ski jump, there's a pin with a shark swimming around. So in an effort to draw people back into viewing and watching Happy Days once again, Fonzie's out there, and is he going to jump it? Is he going to go through it? Is he jumps the ski jump and jumps over the shark, lands on the other side, doing whatever they could do, some outrageous thing to try to draw people back in. Saul, in this situation, jumps the shark by putting up a monument to himself. He says, I refuse to obey God. I'm going to leave Agag alive. I'm going to have all these animals over here in this pen and this mound of treasure that we're going to offer to God as a sacrifice. you got to wonder, would he really if Samuel hadn't come around and asked him about it? See, he had been disobeying God a whole bunch up to this point. The Spirit of God leaves him. He gets frustrated. We see his life kind of take a downward turn. Not kind of. It does take a downward turn. And he recognizes that he doesn't have the Spirit of God living within him, helping him. He's overcome by jealousy and anger, especially when he realizes that this shepherd boy is the one who's supposed to take over his kingdom. And the rest of his life is one of anger and jealousy, frustration, and violence. His selfish desire and our selfish desire grows out of a feeling of separation from God and his people. The longer we maintain that separation, the more erratic and destructive our behavior will come. There's a reason why God says, I want to have communion with you every single day. There's a reason why we need to spend time with God every single day. There's a reason why God says, do not stop getting meeting together as the body of Christ. You need each other just as I need you as you need me. We need each other. Don't stop. We need that relationship together to strengthen one another, to overcome those greedy desires, to help that relationship with God not be estranged. And lastly, disobedience can only be overcome by the gospel of Christ. That is uh, the core of our problem, and the gospel is what is the is not a band-aid that you put on the problem, it's the healing balm that gets rid of it. The gospel of Christ. See, Samuel reminds Saul that God made him king when he was a nobody. When Saul was hiding out behind the bags. I, I love that picture. He says, Samuel's going around and says, okay, let's choose all the families. We're going to choose the king of Israel. Where is he? Saul was hiding out. He was a nobody. 
And God says, you are going to be the prince over my people. In the same way, when we are, were nobodies, when we were stuck in our sins, Romans 5, 8, when we are still stuck in our sins, Christ died for us. He died for you and me. He didn't wait for us to get better. He didn't wait for us to start coming to church. He didn't wait for us to pick up a first, first Bible. He sent somebody to talk to you. He sent somebody to talk to me, to share the message of his love and his grace and his mercy. And all I need to do is to commit myself to him, to say, it's not about me, it's about you. Saul could have humbly received the grace of God. He could have allowed the value of God's gift to him to captivate him with awe. And yet he hardened himself against God's grace over and over and over again. He chose to harden himself. Think about this. Christ died the witch's death so that we might have the saints' acceptance. Christ died like we should have died because of our disobedience so that we could be received by God as one of his saints. While we were still in our sins, Christ died for us. The essence of the gospel, the essence of our plan, of our desire, the essence of what God has called us to. You have to and, and think, in, in Hebrews chapter 10, the author has to think back to, we read earlier, where Samuel says it's better to, to obey is better than sacrifice. The, he, the author of Hebrews says this, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Samuel says to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. God's message to us as well. To obey is better than sacrifice. First Samuel 15, Samuel said, As a Lord, a greater delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as the iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. What is God's true judgment against Saul? He loses out. He loses out because of his disobedience. What does God really want from Saul? Obedience. His heart. What does God want from us? Obedience. Our hearts.
question today is what do we need to put away in our lives that we are not obeying God in? What do we need to put away in our lives today? As we close out this morning, before we just before we go to the take a communion, I want to give us an opportunity for you and God when I'm when I pray. Take a few minutes to clear your hearts, prepare your hearts for this communion time that we're going to take. Because as you come before God, come before him with a clear conscience and a clear heart. And you confess to God those areas in your life that are not pleasing to him. Confess areas in your life right now that you know that you've been compromising in, that I've been compromising in. So as we come before the Lord's table this morning to remember how he took that which is death upon himself so that we might be called saints. As Drew plays quietly, we're going to just bow your heads and close your eyes and just silently to yourself, just you and God pray and you ask him to reveal to you those areas in your life where we are compromising in our obedience, compromising in our faith, and you recommit yourself to him.